Well, the selfie, you know what a selfie is, don't you? The selfie's been around a while, but it went viral in 2004 when the iPhone 4 first introduced the front-facing camera. Suddenly, it became easy for everyone to take a picture of themselves and, in essence, let the world know what they're doing. Hashtag me. But long before selfie technology was invented, the false teachers in Corinth, they were also boasting of their exploits. Paul boasted too, but there was a difference. You see, the false teachers boasted in tangible successes, whereas when Paul spoke of his credentials and with the proof of his calling, he pointed not to the stars in his crown, but to the scars on his body. He pointed to all that he had suffered for Jesus' sake. The proof of his legitimacy was his scars. You see, the false teachers in Corinth, they would have snapped selfies of themselves riding in limos or preaching in designer sneakers or addressing packed stadiums or laying hands on the sick or collecting huge offerings or posing with celebrities, whereas Paul's selfies were very different. As a matter of fact, I'm going to show you a little glimpse at Paul's Instagram. Did you know Paul had an Instagram? Yeah, here's his Instagram. Here he is in the middle of the ocean, in the midst of a shipwreck, shark circling. He takes a selfie, hashtag spreading the gospel. Or here he is holding his camera out from under a pile of stones after he's been brutally pelted, hashtag rocking for Jesus. Or here he is, he snaps a selfie in chains behind prison bars. Hashtag prison again. Or here he is at a riot that was caused by his preaching. Hashtag still worth it. Or here's Paul relaxing after another one of his missionary journeys. Hashtag ministry is not for sissies. Paul proved his sincerity not by the outward trappings of ministerial success, but by pointing to his scars. In fact, he posts a verbal selfie at the end of chapter 11. There he boasts of a strange experience that occurred at the beginning of his ministry, his humiliating escape from Damascus. He had ignited so much opposition that he was forced to exit the city at night over the wall in a basket. What a letdown for Paul. Paul began as a real basket case, that's for sure. And yet he also experienced a real pick-me-up. He was let down in a basket, but he was caught up into heaven. And in chapter 12, Paul continues his boasting of his God-given revelations and the thorn that accompanied them. Verse 1, It is doubtless not profitable for me to boast. In other words, the boasting that I've been doing is not something I like to do, but it's been necessary. You see, Paul would have rather talked about Jesus than himself. But the personal attacks that had come from his critics demanded a defense. And so he says, I come to visions and revelations of the Lord. Now again, at the end of chapter 11, Paul had spoken of beatings and stonings and imprisonments. Now he goes from collisions to visions. He was beat up for the cause of Christ, but he was picked up by Christ himself. He had a vision from God. Understand, Paul had numerous visions. Paul was a mystic. 
He relied on spiritual illumination. He lived his life with his feet firmly on the ground, but he always kept his head and his heart in the heavens. Reminds me of the day the king's son was born. The king ordered his royal gardener to work cultivating the most magnificent flower ever grown. It would be his son's gift to his bride when the time came for the young boy to marry. The gardener began many years of experimentation and crossbreeding until he finally developed his masterpiece. He called it the Rainbow Rose. On the day of their wedding, the couple visited the royal garden for the bride to pick out her rose. But when she stooped before the rainbow rose, she picked a rose beside it. Just an ordinary rose, an ordinary flower. The gardener was stunned. What was wrong? Why had she picked a common flower over his masterpiece? It turns out the new queen had discovered the rainbow rose's one flaw. It had no scent. Everyone else was so enamored by its beauty that they had ignored its imperfection, that it didn't give off a scent. But the queen hadn't ignored it. She was blind. And in the same way, Paul was not enamored by what his eyes saw. He was blind to the things of this world. He was not so caught up in the spiritual. He wasn't so caught up in the physical, in the tangible, that he ignored the spiritual. That he missed the scent of God's Spirit. He was sensitive to the whispers of the Holy Spirit. How about you? You see, on countless occasions, Paul was given divine guidance and supernatural assistance. You remember on the day he was converted, he saw the Lord in all his glory on the road to Damascus. At Troas, he saw a vision of a man from Macedonia calling him to cross over the Aegean Sea and preach the gospel in Europe. During the storm at sea, Paul saw an angel. An angel appeared to him with assurance and instruction. Certainly, we need our Bible for guidance. We need to read our Bible. But God confirms and even augments His Word through supernaturally discerned whispers. Are you sensitive to the Holy Spirit and the visions God might give you? Recall in 1 Kings chapter 19, God spoke to Elijah, not in the wind, not in the earthquake, not in the fire, but He spoke to him in a still, small voice. Are we listening? Are we open? Hey, we need to be critical of dreams and visions and angelic appearances, but we need to be open to them. Don't just be looking at life. Start to smell. Paul tells us in verse 2, I know a man in Christ who 14 years ago... Now, Paul's so uncomfortable talking about himself, he speaks here in the third person. This was a common way that the rabbis would deflect glory from themselves. He says, whether in the body I do not know, or whether out of the body I do not know, God knows such a one was caught up to the third heaven. Now here Paul elaborates on one of the spiritual experiences that God had provided him. Now since we're uncertain as to when Paul penned 2 Corinthians, it's possible, impossible for us to pinpoint 14 years earlier. It could have been toward the end of his preparation for ministry in his hometown of Tarsus. Or it could have been during his stay in Antioch before launching out on his first missionary journey. Or more probably, it probably occurred on that journey 
in the town of Lystra. And you remember what happened in Lystra. This was the scene of Paul's stoning in Acts chapter 14. You can go back and read about it. An angry mob gathered around Paul and pelted him with rocks. Actually drug him out of the city and left him for dead. Notice how he describes his state at the time of his vision. He says, whether in the body or out of the body, I do not know. In other words, I'm not sure if I was dead or alive. This is what happened to him in Lystra. This could have been the occasion. What we know for sure is that early in Paul's ministry, God prepared him with a vision. God knew that to withstand the fierce persecutions on earth, Paul would need a profound sense of the glories of heaven. Paul says he was caught up. That's the same Greek word used to describe the rapture. Could it be that God arranged a mini rapture for Paul? His body was whisked off to heaven and then brought back? Or could it be that he was transported spiritually while his body was left in limbo, perhaps under that pile of stones? This would have been a true out-of-body experience. What impressed Paul, though, was what he saw and heard. For God gave him a glimpse of the third heaven. Now, heaven number one is the earth's atmosphere, the clouds around us. Heaven number two is outer space. But the third heaven is out of this world. It's a spiritual dimension. And Paul was caught up into this third heaven, into God's presence, into God's very throne room. Modern technology enables man to travel to the first two heavens on his own. But no one can reach the third heaven without God's transport and without God's permission. Apparently, God took Paul to heaven. And Paul repeats his astonishing testimony in verse 3. And I know such a man, whether in the body or out of the body, I do not know. God knows how he was caught up into paradise and heard inexpressible words which it is not lawful for a man to utter. Now, I love the word that Paul uses to describe God's throne room. He calls heaven paradise. Paradise is a Persian word which referred to a walled garden. You know, wealthy desert sheiks would dig deep wells, and then they would import luscious flowers and shade trees and spicy bushes to plant around the spring, and then they would enclose it within a wall. It was their own private oasis in the desert. And this is the picture that the Bible paints of heaven. You remember Jesus told the thief on the cross, Today you will be with me in paradise. Heaven will be an oasis. Forget about heaven as a sterile white hospital corridor. Or a barge of fluffy, puffy clouds floating in thin air. No way. Heaven is a garden. It's full of lush greenery and thick shade and cool streams and delicious fruit, and tantalizing smells. Tahiti and Hawaii combined can't touch heaven. Heaven will be a new and a better Garden of Eden. And it's mind-boggling to realize that Paul was given the same privilege as the first man, Adam. He walked with God in the garden. He heard mysteries explained by God himself. Paul had literally been to heaven. And yet he had remained silent about it for 14 years. If you'd gone to heaven, would you have been silent about it? To me, this is the real miracle. 
that Paul restrained himself. He didn't jump on the talk show circuit or publish a book or launch a website, paradise.org. Nor did he use his heavenly experience in his fundraising letters. That's what a lot of pastors would have done. No, when what Paul saw and heard at the throne of God was too sacred. It was too holy to try to put into earthly terms. And this is what makes me suspicious of pompous preachers today who claim similar types of experiences. If the Apostle Paul remained silent about heaven for 14 years, if he felt that feeble human language could never do heaven justice, who do people think they are today where they flaunt their revelations and their visions? What, when, you really, when you really see God, you are hushed by Him. You become speechless. In other words, God takes your breath away. Reminds me of the 85-year-old couple. They've been married for 60 years. They both were in good health, mainly due to the wife's interest in diet and exercise. When they reached heaven, Peter took them on a tour, showed them their luxurious mansion. As they were ooing and aahing, the old man, he asked Peter, he says, how much is this going to cost me? Peter says, it's free. This is heaven. Well, in addition, their home was on a championship golf course. The man asked, he said, what are the green fees? Again, Peter replied, This is heaven. You play for free up here. Next, they went into the clubhouse, and they saw this lavish buffet. How much to eat here? Peter was getting impatient with his fellow. He said, you don't get it. It's heaven. It's free. It was starting to seep in when the old man asked. He says, well, where are the low-fat and low-cholesterol tables? Peter had to lecture him. He said, man, he said, that's the best part. You can eat as much as you like of whatever you like. You're in heaven. You you never get fat. You never get sick. This is heaven. Well, that was it. The old man came unglued. He went into a rage. He got angry at his wife. Well, after Peter calmed him down, he asked him what was wrong. He turned to his wife of 60 years and he scolded her. He says, this is all your fault. If it weren't for your blasted bran muffins, I could have been here 10 years ago. Hey, when we arrive in heaven, we won't long for anything we've left behind on this earth. Trust me. Heaven will be heavenly. Hey, we may never be given a vivid, as vivid a picture of heaven as Paul, but God reveals our future glory in His Word. For He knows that before we begin our ministries, we need a vision of how they'll end. It's hard to endure the rigors of serving God without a view of its rewards. Paul continues in verse 5, Of such a one I will boast, yet of myself I will not boast, except in my infirmities. See, a humble Paul was far more comfortable discussing his low points when he had to cry out to God than he was his high points when God spoke to him in Revelations. He says, For though I might desire to boast, I will not be a fool, for I will speak the truth. But I refrain, lest anyone should think of me above what he sees me to be or hears from me. Paul was leery of inflating his own pride. He would have never gone down this path of boasting had the Corinthians not doubted his ministry. 
And God also knew of Paul's very human tendency to become proud and puffed up. This is why God guarded against it. Verse 7. And lest I should be exalted above measure by the abundance of the revelations, a thorn in the flesh was given to me, a messenger of Satan to buffet me, lest I be exalted above measure. Now notice Paul doesn't actually identify his thorn in the flesh. But all kinds of theories have been advanced. For me, the most plausible is that of an infectious eye disease that flared up on him from time to time, especially when he was in warmer, tropical climates. It could be that the blinding light he had seen on the road to Damascus had weakened his eyes, and somewhere along the line he had picked up an infection which caused his eyes to scab over. You remember when Paul writes to the people of Lystra, And their neighbors, the Galatians, we call them. Galatians 4, verse 15. Paul speaks of their love toward him, and he says, You would have plucked out your own eyes and given them to me if it had been possible. Why? What was wrong with his eyes? Apparently he had a problem. In Galatians 6, verse 11, he talks about the large characters that he used when he wrote that letter. Possibly another indication that he was having a problem with his vision and he had to write in all caps. The Greek word translated thorn means a stake or a dagger. A person suffering from trachoma develops a pus over the eye that causes the lashes to become brittle. And at times they dig into the eye like a stake or like a thorn. If you've ever had a scratch on your cornea, you can imagine the pain. It feels like a knife. Or a thorn thrust into your eye. All we know for sure about Paul's thorn is that it didn't go away. He writes in verse 8. Concerning this thing, I pleaded with the Lord three times that it might depart from me. You remember Jesus prayed three times in the Garden of Gethsemane for the cup to pass from him. Perhaps here Paul was modeling Jesus' prayer. And he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you. For my strength is made perfect in weakness. See, with a spiritual blessing often comes the tendency toward pride. And to safeguard against pride, God will plant a thorn in our lives to keep us humble. That thorn is a reminder of how desperately we need God. It can be painful, but it's worth it. See, a thorn keeps, us dry, keeps driving us to our knees. And even though Paul prayed three times, God refused to remove his thorn. See, a weakened Paul learned that the greatest strength was not found in himself, but in God's sufficiency. Paul's thorn kept him dependent upon God's all-sufficient grace in a way that he never would have otherwise. Roy Campanella was an all-star catcher for the Brooklyn Dodgers Before he lost the use of his arms and legs in a terrible car accident, he became paralyzed. But Roy Campanella maintained an incredible attitude. He was inspired early in his recovery by a plaque hanging on the wall of the hospital he occupied in New York City. Countless times, Roy would roll his wheelchair past this plaque. One day, he stopped to read it, and then he read it again and read it again. Here's what was engraved on the plaque. I asked God for strength that I might achieve. I was made weak that I might learn humbly to obey. 
I asked for health that I might do great things. I was given infirmity that I might do better things. I asked for riches that I might be happy. I was given poverty that I might be wise. I asked for power that I might have the praise of men. I was given weakness that I might feel the need for God. I asked for all things that I might enjoy life. I was given life that I might enjoy all things. I got nothing I asked for, but everything I'd hoped for. I am among men the most richly blessed. And this was the attitude of the Apostle Paul. Rather than grow mad that God had failed to remove his thorn in the flesh, Paul learned to view it as a gift from God. We too need to learn to rejoice even in our weaknesses. For these are our opportunities for God to demonstrate his strength. Well, Paul finishes his thoughts on his thorn in verse 9. He says, Therefore, most gladly, I will rather boast in my infirmities that the power of Christ may rest upon me. Therefore, I take pleasure in infirmities, in reproaches, in needs, in persecutions, in distresses for Christ's sake. For when I am weak, then I am strong. Do we take pleasure in infirmities? We should. For we are always stronger leaning on the Lord than we are standing tall and proud in our own strength. Verse 11, I have become a fool in boasting. You have compelled me, for I ought to have been commended by you. For in nothing was I behind the most eminent apostles, though I am nothing. Now the Corinthians should have appreciated Paul. Instead, they had forced him to boast and extol his own merits. The foolish Corinthians had been proud of the wrong teachers. They had exalted the false teachers, the phony men of God. They called them eminent apostles, literally super apostles. And yet in no way were they superior to Paul. He says in verse 12, Truly the signs of an apostle were accomplished among you with all perseverance, in signs and wonders and mighty deeds. Remember while Paul was in Corinth, we read about it in the book of Acts, Paul had worked miracles among them. The Corinthians had seen God confirm Paul's apostleship. For what is it in which you were inferior to other churches, except that I myself was not burdensome to you? Forgive me this wrong. Here Paul's pen drips with sarcasm. The only thing these super apostles did that Paul didn't do was take the Corinthians' money. Paul's saying, forgive me for not ripping you off like these other men. See, while in Corinth, Paul had worked a secular job. And he had taken financial support from other churches so that he could minister free of charge to the Corinthians. Paul didn't want pleas for money to cast a doubt or a cloud over his motives. Verse 14, For now for the third time I'm ready to come to you, and I will not be burdensome to you, for I do not seek yours but you. Paul again is coming to Corinth, and like before, he's not after their money. He just wants their hearts. He he loves them, and he wants them to love Jesus. Realize, there are two approaches to ministry. There are some pastors who feel the congregation exists for them. They would never say it or admit it, but in a thousand subtle ways, it's what gets communicated. The church is there to build the pastor's dreams, to finance his empire. Whereas there are pastors who serve and love the people, they exist for the congregation, not vice versa. A few weeks ago, I 
had a friend of mine, Bob Lobby, who pastors the Calvary Chapel in Aiken, South Carolina. Bob graduated to heaven. I miss him already. I attended his funeral. And at the funeral, one by one by one, the folks in his church stood and recounted examples of the sacrificial way that he loved his people. What an example of sincerity and a servant's heart. Bob had been forgiven much, and so he loved much. And this was Paul's attitude. He writes, For the children ought not to lay up for the parents, but the parents for the children. Hey, as a father, I'm the one who's supposed to be scraping and saving and sacrificing for my kids, not vice versa. My kids will one day do the same for their kids. It's the parents that lay up and pay up for their kids. Which reminds me of the kids who chipped in to purchase their dad a nice Father's Day present. One of the siblings suggested, hey, let's get dad a gift that we all can get something out of. So they bought him a wallet. But Christian service is equal to spiritual parenthood. It's about what you give, not about what you get. A person gets involved in ministry because they're willing to spend their life to see other folks grow and mature in Christ. And this is why Paul continues, And I will very gladly spend and be spent for your souls. Paul will waste his life away. He'll exhaust his resources and burn up his energy and sacrifice his health to see the Corinthians flourish. This is a true pastor. This is the man with a pastor's heart. And when you find a man like this, support him, follow him, never take him for granted. And yet that wasn't the Corinthians' attitude. Paul groans, though the more abundantly I love you, the less I am loved. These Corinthians were like ungrateful children who were oblivious to the love of their parents. The church at Corinth had taken Paul's selfless and sacrificial ministry for granted. It's sad that churches today often make the same mistake. Verse 16, But be that as it may, I did not burden you. Nevertheless, being crafty, I caught you by cunning. Did I take advantage of you by any of those whom I sent to you? He's being sarcastic here. The obvious answer to this was no. Paul was above board in his dealings with the Corinthians. And with the people he sent to them, they too were honest. He says, I urged Titus and sent our brother with him. Did Titus take advantage of you? Did we not walk in the same spirit? Did we not walk in the same steps? Not once did Paul or any of his pals mistreat the Corinthians. Again, do you think that we excuse ourselves to you? We speak before God in Christ, but we do all things, beloved, for your edification. Only motivation in Paul's ministry was edification or the building up of these Corinthians. You know, occasion you'll see a church, First Corinth Baptist or Corinthian Baptist or Corinthian Presbyterian or something, and think, who in the world would want to go to a church with Corinth in its name? Obviously, they haven't read the letters to Corinthians and to the Corinthians. Verse 20. For I fear lest when I come, I shall not find you such as I wish, and that I shall be found by you such as you do not wish. Paul's afraid that his next visit to Corinth is going to get ugly. 
that, that he's going to find them in sin and he's going to be forced to administer a stern rebuke. In fact, here's what he fears he'll find. And this is what, what you don't want to find at church. He says, lest there be contentions, jealousies, outbursts of wrath, selfish ambitions, backbitings, whisperings, conceits, tumults. Doesn't make for a good church experience. This was the opposite of love. The Corinthians lacked love. And Paul was afraid that when he got there, he'd have to point this out in person. The chapter closes. Lest when I come again, my God will humble me among you, and I shall mourn for many who have sinned before and have not repented of their uncleanness, fornication, and lewdness, which they have practiced. This word translated mourn, it refers to the mourning for the dead. And Paul here doesn't want his next visit to Corinth to be a funeral for a dead church. He wants them to take heed to this letter. Chapter 13. This will be the third time I am coming to you. He's preparing for this upcoming visit. By the mouth of two or three witnesses, every word shall be established. This was a quote from Deuteronomy 19, verse 15. Under the Hebrew law, two or three eyewitnesses were needed to convict a person of a crime. And here Paul is amounting his case against the Corinthians. He's heard of their rebellion. Now he's coming to see for himself. He's saying, ready or not, here I come. When he reaches Corinth, he's going to confront his accusers face to face. He's going to finally put an end to their lies. He says, I have told you before and foretell as if I were present the second time. And now being absent, I write to those who have sinned before and to all the rest that if I come again, I will not spare. Is Paul threatening them? Apparently so. This word spare means to spare in battle. Paul's declaring war on the false teachers in Corinth. And then verse 3. Since you seek a proof of Christ speaking in me, who is not weak towards you, but mighty in you, for though he was crucified in weakness, yet he lives by the power of God. For we also are weak in him, but we shall live with him by the power of God towards you. See, Paul was criticized for being weak in appearance and unpolished in speech and unpretentious in his mannerism. He wasn't as flamboyant as his critics would have liked. His enemies mistook gaudy for godly. And Paul straightens them out by pointing to Christ. Jesus appeared weak. There was nothing flamboyant about Jesus. On the cross, Jesus was the antithesis of what the world would consider successful and pleasing and pretty. He shattered worldly criteria. He proved that physicality can never measure true spirituality. And since appearances can be deceiving, just look at Jesus. The greatest power in the world presented itself as weakness. But since appearances can be deceiving, Paul suggests that the Corinthians evaluate themselves. Verse 5, examine yourselves as to whether you are in the faith. Test yourselves. Do you not know yourselves that Jesus Christ is in you? Unless indeed you are disqualified. Here is a big truth that we all should consider. Just because you call yourself a Christian doesn't mean you are one. Hey, just because you attend church doesn't mean you're a Christian. 
Just because you're born in a barn doesn't make you a cow. Just because you go to a Dunkin' Donut doesn't make you a police officer. Just because you wear a Christian t-shirt or use Christian lingo or listen to Toby Mac or quote verses, it doesn't make you a Christian. Paul concedes that some of the Corinthians were pulling the wool over people's eyes, even fooling themselves. He says, examine yourselves to see if you're in the faith. Once a mom, she heard her little girl pray, now I lay me down to rest. I pray I pass tomorrow's test. If I should die before I wake, that's one less test I'll have to take. (laughs) The truth is, is that when we die, we all will receive our final grade. And guess what? It's pass or fail. Either you embrace Jesus as Lord or you don't. You might resist Him or you might have ignored Him, but both receive failing grades. Just because you say you're a Christian or you do Christian things doesn't make you a Christian. I'll never forget my mom. My mom sang in the choir. She actually played the organ for our church before she ever committed her life to Jesus. I recall the night. It was at a revival meeting we were having when suddenly the music stopped playing during the altar call. I looked up to see what had happened to my mom. She had ceased playing and she had walked to the altar In her choir robe. She was heavily involved in our church. And yet she realized she wasn't a Christian. She became one that night. As a kid I was baptized three times. Thinking I was a Christian. And yet I never surrendered my will to Jesus. I was wet. (laughs) Pruny fingers. But I wasn't a Christian. And it can happen. You can profess and not possess. Seriously, you need to think about this. Paul says, examine yourself to see if you're in the faith. Sadly, hell will be shoulder to shoulder full of church folk. I read of a young man who enrolled in a graduate school. But when the official sent for his college transcripts, there was a mix-up. People at the college recalled the young man. He'd been quite popular on campus, but there was no record of him being enrolled. His file showed no classes attended, no credits given, no grades earned. When they contacted him to clear up the confusion, he confessed. He had taken the money that his parents had sent for his four years in college, but he had never officially enrolled. He had gone to class, but he had audited the courses. He had attended college, but never was truly a part. And I'm afraid that's exactly what people are doing today. And and a lot of people in our churches are doing. They attend class, but they've never been enrolled. Are you auditing the Christian life, or have you enrolled? If you're just auditing, friend, you won't get credit. It's been calculated by the time a person finishes college, they will have taken 2,600 tests and quizzes. But there's one exam that we all need to take. Paul says, examine your heart. Test your faith to see if Christ truly dwells in you. This is the most vital test that you and I will ever take. And by putting together several scriptures, Romans 8 verse 9, 1 John 3 verse 14, 2 verse 29, 5 verse 4, 
I've put together for you this morning an SAT test, a salvation acquisition test. Here are four questions that you can ask yourself to see if you are in the faith this morning. First, do you sense the Holy Spirit's presence in your life? Or are you empty inside? God promises that when we give our lives to Him, that He'll send His Spirit to occupy and dwell within us. Is there an inner witness inside your heart? Question number one. Question number two. Do you love other believers? Is there this outer witness? Is there a camaraderie with God's family? God says, if we know Him, we'll love one another. Is there a love in your heart for others who can't claim Christ? The third question to ask is, do you practice righteousness? What God puts into our hearts eventually wiggles its way out. Thus, a cleansed heart ends up producing a changed and purified life. Are you starting to do things God's way instead of your way? And then fourth, are you overcoming the world? Have you gained a newfound motivation and reason for living that helps you resist temptation and take a stand for Jesus? Hey, if you're in Christ, the answer to all four of those questions will be yes. I'm not talking perfection, but I am talking some progression. You'll be getting better at these things. You'll be moving in this direction. It's difficult to live the Christian life without knowing for sure that you are one. God wants us to examine our hearts so that we'll have assurance of our salvation. Do you have that sense of the Holy Spirit's presence? Do you have a love for others? Do you practice righteousness? And are you living an overcoming life? Paul adds, but I trust that you will know that we are not disqualified. He hopes that his vision provides both him and the Corinthians evidence of each other's faith. He says, now I pray to God that you do no evil. Not that we should appear approved, but that you should do what is honorable, though we may seem disqualified. In essence, Paul is saying he's going to take no joy in saying, I told you so. Paul would love for the Corinthians to take heed to his letters, and therefore no carnality be among them when he comes. He would be happy to appear wrong. For we can do nothing against the truth, but for the truth. For we are glad when we are weak and you are strong. Paul didn't mind looking weak if it meant the church was strong. This was not about him, it was about them. And this also we pray, that you may be made complete. This word translated complete means fully fitted, thoroughly equipped. Paul wants them to have everything they need to live victoriously for Christ. This is also God's desire for us. And then verse 10, Therefore I write these things being absent, lest being present I should use sharpness, according to the authority which the Lord has given me for edification and not for destruction. And as is the case with us, by writing a letter, Paul had been able to say some really hard things to the Corinthians. You know, often in person, things get emotional, tempers rile up, and words get said that shouldn't be said. And so via letter, Paul was able to write clearly and give the Corinthians an opportunity to digest his rebuke before responding. And then verse 11, he begins to wind things down. Finally, brethren, farewell. Become complete. 
Be of good comfort. Be of one mind. Live in peace. And the God of love and peace will be with you. Greet one another with a holy kiss. You know, it's interesting, Professor Michael Christian of Boston College, he's authored two books on kissing. But since the release of his second book, The Art of Kissing, the good professor says that his love life has gone downhill. Christian explains what's happened to him. He says, now when I kiss a woman, she usually responds, you wrote the book on kissing and that's the best you can do? Oh, the problem with being an expert. In his books, Christian says that there are about 25 different types of kisses. I'm not sure if Michael Christian includes the holy kiss in his list, but Paul tells the rest of us Christians to greet each other with a holy kiss. Once I had a guy who'd been coming to church for several weeks, he he told me that what really attracted him to our church was all the hugging that went on. That he really liked the hugging. As a matter of fact, he admitted that he liked... He liked when we stopped and greeted each other because he walked around the room and hugged as many good-looking women as he could. <laughs> He's honest. But that kind of hug is not a holy hug. <laughs> Knock it off. See, in Paul's day, a kiss was a cultural greeting, like a handshake today. Perhaps if Paul were writing to us, he'd say, greet each other with a holy handshake. The point is to exchange warm, sincere greetings, not overtures weighted down with ulterior motives. Expressions of acceptance and togetherness are important. They're needed reminders. Christians shouldn't take each other for granted. The fact that you're here, still serving the Lord, needs to be celebrated. Greet each other with a kiss or with a hug. Just keep it holy. And then Paul finishes his letter. All the saints greet you. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the communion of the Holy Spirit be with you all. Amen. And notice the reference to the Trinity. All three members of the Godhead Godhead, join to conclude the letter. Paul ends with a blessing. May the Savior's grace, may the Father's love, may the Spirit's presence be with us all. And may we live every minute of every day in His grace and in His love and in his presence amen and amen and there